Hi there, welcome to Active Intelligence. I'm Aaron Ironside, and we'll spend the next half an hour, if you stick with me, taking a look at social issues from a variety of points of view. Nobody's going to tell you what to think. You're going to get more balance than bias. Well, that's the goal anyway. Although today's issue really is about a kind of bias that many people find themselves falling foul of, an economic bias, where it's impossible to make ends meet based on the minimum wage, which is why some are calling for a, a new kind of minimum wage, a living wage, to be introduced to ensure that no Kiwi lives below the breadline. Is it a good idea? Do we need to think about this more carefully? It's time to engage some active intelligence. On today's episode, I catch up with policy lawyer from the Salvation Army, Ronji Tanialu, who has some interesting thoughts on this idea of the living wage. The living wage is essentially a kind of aspirational minimum wage, with the idea being that really in this day and age, nobody should have to work a full week and still not be able to put groceries on the table. That there's some kind of moral imperative on the employer to make sure that those who work for them can at least have the basics of life. Well, it seems like a reasonable idea, but for time immemorial, economists have been saying, no, 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 anytime the market decides what the employer has to pay, that's going to lead to the wrong kinds of outcomes. Let's take a listen to classic economist Milton Friedman being the first, really, of the doomsayers about a minimum wage. The higher minimum wage will lead to people being unemployed. I think everybody will agree on that. All people say is, oh, well, the number would be small, and that's offset by the advantage of those who are still employed. However, by decreasing the number employed, do you increase or decrease the total pie? Do you have more to distribute to everybody in the country if more people are employed or if fewer people are employed? Obviously, you have more to distribute if more people are employed. They produce more. These low-wage people who are driven into unemployment by a, a rise in the minimum wage don't produce what they otherwise would have produced. So the total pie is smaller. Now, how can that on net be an advantage? So there's Milton Friedman. He believed that the minimum wage would lead to more unemployment. And the good news is we can now test that theory. And the results are a bit surprising. Some Princeton researchers have done exactly uh, that, looked into whether or not uh, a minimum wage uh, will in fact increase or decrease employment. There are many who are concerned in a free market that the government is the last person who should be telling the employer how much they need to pay their staff. Ben Shapiro is a conservative commentator uh, in the US and he has some interesting thoughts. He's also one who fears that the minimum wage will lead to the wrong outcomes. Let's take a listen. Here's the problem. In seeking to end that exploitation, what you are very often doing is providing them a choice now of no choice. Meaning, for example, let's take a minimum wage law, which is essentially Lochner is talking about things like minimum wage laws. You're talking about um, maximum work hours and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so the, the problem with a minimum wage law is that what you have now done is you've circumscribed choice even further. Because you're not actually giving people a broader range of choices. Now you're telling employers that they have to hire people at a certain price. They may think that the employee is not worth the price and just not hire them. And this is what happens very often with minimum wage laws. The solution to all of this is something that I believe in 
which is private unionization. So I think the private union is that you get together with all your friends, you say, listen, none of us are going to work for anything below this wage. We're not allowed to kneecap anybody because that's use of force. But if all of us agree, we're not going to go in, we're not going to work in this place that's going to kill us in two years. I, that's perfectly legitimate and good, right? Collective bargaining on a voluntary basis is a good thing and doesn't violate any free market principles. What I don't like is the idea that if you decide to take a job at 7.50 an hour and I think that I could have bargained better than you, right? That I could have bargained it up to $10, for example. Or I think that if you had held out a little longer, you might have gotten $10. Or I think that maybe you couldn't have, but you know, the guy can afford $10. You are now imposing your own view of a situation on the actors who are engaging in the act itself. We don't do this in any other area of life. It, it seems bizarre to me that we would do it in the area of economics. Well, I do appreciate that Ben Shapiro is advocating for some kind of collective bargaining to ensure that essentially employees get together and advocate for a certain kind of minimum conditions. However, I can't help but think that his last point about this idea that one person might be able to bargain for a higher wage than another might be a bit naive, and particularly with respect to the minimum wage, because of course people who are on the minimum wage are either typically school leavers or those who don't have any particular training or skills. In other words, they do not bring a lot of leverage to that conversation about how much I'm going to be paid. And of course, they're often very desperate because they really do need this job, even if it pays so poorly. So I think in that equation, the balance of the power falls too far with the employer. And that's perhaps why governments have things like minimum wages, but are they too low? Should we increase them even further to what is being called the living wage? Because apparently, it's really hard to live on the minimum wage even. But what about this question, this theory that if the market is told what it has to pay, the rather than improving the lot of those at the bottom of the economic ladder, it could make things worse. There could be more unemployment. Well, it's just as well that we have the opportunity now to be able to test these kinds of ideas rather than just theorise, which is exactly what Princeton University has done uh, as they've compared two neighbouring US states who had different approaches to the minimum wage law, and the results are kind of surprising. In 1992, two economists from Princeton, David Card and Alan Kruger, looked at how changes to the minimum wage affected employment at fast food restaurants in two states with differing policies. New Jersey, where the minimum wage for workers increased, and neighboring Pennsylvania, where it stayed the same. Of course, what conventional theory would tell you at the time is, the minimum wage has gone up in New Jersey, it hasn't gone up in Pennsylvania. What you'd expect to see is employment in New Jersey to fall relative to employment in Pennsylvania. But what Card and Kruger found is actually the opposite. Despite the wage going up in New Jersey, employment actually increased. This surprising result can be explained by the idea of monopsony power, something that employers in the fast food industry may possess to a degree. In a monopoly, there is one dominant supplier who sells to many buyers. A monopsony is the opposite. There's one sole buyer of goods or employer of workers. The classic example is a one-factory town, but all employers have a degree of monopsony power, in this case, the fast food company in an area. With less competition, the employer can set the wage for their workers. This means wages can be kept artificially low. Card and Kruger found that a small wage increase didn't lead to redundancies because wages were already below market rate. 
And why did employment increase? The higher wage may have attracted new workers to the market. The study proved, for the first time, that raising the minimum wage doesn't necessarily destroy jobs. This groundbreaking finding challenged conventional wisdom on minimum wages in America and saw similar policies spread around the world. China introduced a minimum wage in 1994, Britain in 1998, along with Ireland in 2000, and Germany in 2015. Cards and Kruger's finding also led to a new focus on empirical or real-world data, as opposed to theory. Yet gathering empirical data isn't easy and can give contradictory results. So far from providing clarity, the study only served to reignite the debate. Nothing quite like the facts to disrupt our kind of ideas. It turned out that unemployment was not the result of the minimum wage. It exposed this monospony, uh, this idea that when there's only one kind of employer, they have a little bit too much power and can drive the price down. And I think that's the problem, isn't it, with the market forces approach, is that the market forces also include exploitation, that those who could pay more choose not to because of the unique conditions they find themselves in. So it turns out, like so many issues in life, this one's more complicated than we first imagined. Well, on today's interview, I caught up with a man who's a deep thinker about these kinds of issues because he spends his life advocating for the poor, trying to work out how can legislation serve those who are most in need. He's a policy analyst and lawyer for the Salvation Army. I caught up with Ranji Tanialu. Lover for lover, thanks for having me, Aaron. Well, we've recently seen an increase in the minimum wage in this country, $20 an hour. First time it's hit uh, the 20 mark. Uh, a quick little bit of research says that if you are working 40 hours a week, that means you are earning in the hand about $675. Uh, that's not a lot of money if you've got anybody else who's relying on you. That minimum wage really is the emphasis on the word minimum. When we have this discussion around the minimum wage, the living wage, and so on, I think we're talking about a, a, a reality in New Zealand that a lot of Kiwis can't are struggling to get by. And so these are the minimums, and there are some benchmarks that are through the living wage. But again, uh, it's a debatable topic, and I think that's what we're here to discuss. But it is good to see some of that progress in terms of the minimum wage legislation. But the challenging part of that is you know, do the employers put that back on the consumers? What happens there? There's always challenges. I'm not an economist, but I know that those things, there's an ebb and flow. When you make a change here, there's going to be another impact somewhere else. Well, we'll certainly take a look at those impacts today. But let's talk about life on that minimum wage. We'll, we'll note for the record, the living wage has been adjusted to $22. So it's still the case that the minimum wage falls below that. But practically, many of us couldn't appreciate what life might be like, what you have to go without, how life really is if you're on the minimum wage. I mean, what is life like for whanau who are dealing with this? I guess talking from our perspective as the Salvation Army, we're talking about families who are finding it quite tough and stressful. But can I just say not impossible? You know, we're still seeing families on the minimum wage who are still surviving and even thriving. Uh, but within the increasing pressures that are, that are coming on these families in terms of uh, living costs, housing costs, school fees, all this other kind of stuff that's coming into play, uh, it is uh, sort of leading towards increased hardship for a lot of our families. 
I guess when it comes to minimum wage, I think we need to unpack the fact that it does depend on your location, depends on your situation. I mean, uh, the context is absolutely key here. The impact on for minimum wage for a solo parent with five kids, it's much different to, say, a, a teenager who's on a minimum wage who's still living with their parents in a middle-class family. So a lot of these things come into play, but generally what we see at the Salvation Army are those who are on lower incomes, on the minimum wage, who are struggling to get by and make ends meet. And that's the general picture that we see throughout the In one sense, we could see that for the most part, based on certainly what you're saying, many families at least are able to put food on the table and to kind of get by. But if we think about this time last year, level four lockdown, and suddenly you had to do all of your schooling from home, and that really highlighted this issue for many families, because that meant if you didn't have a laptop, if you didn't have a Wi-Fi connection, you couldn't do the schoolwork, uh, and that really exposed a kind of poverty that perhaps many of us were very blind to. Yeah, and I think with what happened with the impact of COVID, a lot of the cracks that were in society already almost got got worse. They, they were exacerbated. They they were magnified because of COVID. I'll give you an example. Uh, during the original Level 4 and 3 lockdown, which was about eight weeks uh, last year, Salvation Army gave out 37,000 food parcels, which for us is usually the key indicator or the initial indicator of the hardship that families were facing. You talked about sort of the challenges around education and schooling and you're talking about um, the increase in family violence and family harm during lockdowns as well so there's a lot of these competing pressures that came out of COVID. I think one of the things that we have noticed though with COVID um, Aaron is we receive or we work with 10,000 brand new clients during the uh, the COVID lockdown period. These are whānau or people that were probably donating to the food banks the year before but last year because they lost a job or um, faced financial hardship or mortgage to the hilt, something happened, they were now needing the, the services of a food bank. So we were talking about real challenges around just money and income and revenue and, and having enough to survive. COVID really blew up a lot of those things, and so we're still seeing the tail of that today. You and I are not economists, but we're going to try and see if we can't explore some of the economic realities. Uh, There's two kind of competing, they they sort of flow together. On the one hand, we saw business owners already pushing back about an, uh, an increase to the minimum wage. For them, this idea, as you say, that this cost either has to be absorbed by a business owner or passed on to a consumer or potentially cost someone a job because, frankly, that business can no longer afford to employ under those conditions. And that, of course, is a problem, in a sense, on steroids if we insist on the minimum wage. But right at the heart of rather the living wage, right at the heart of this, though, is this idea that somehow the burden of responsibility uh, is pushed onto the employer, that there's some sort of moral responsibility to ensure that the kind of money you pay your employers employees is enough to actually survive and to live on. Yeah, look, uh, I'm not a, an economist or a philosopher there, so we're talking about some interesting topics here. I guess I would say that I think bosses or employers have a moral responsibility responsibility to be fair and just employers. And employees themselves have a moral responsibility to be good, hardworking, honest employers. Employees. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, it's, a, it's a challenging environment. I guess what I would say is, Part of the responsibility that sits on employers is to fa- is to pay a, a fair wage that is re- that is uh, worthy and honouring of the work that that employer that employee is doing. 
Fed's impacted by the market, by profit, by all the other things. And look, I don't know. Um, I think where I would land on that, Aaron, is I believe that employers have a moral responsibility to be fair and just. And I think they have to be uh, within the context. Like I've owned businesses before, and it's been a struggle. I've owned businesses where you're trying to pay employees a fair wage, and it's been really difficult. So, look, it's hard to walk in their shoes as well. So all I'm saying is there is a responsibility to be fair and just. Um, government plays a role in, in, in mandating some of that, and we have the, the, the minimum baseline. But then we have aspirational targets as well, and that's what living wages and other targets as well. So uh, that, that would be probably my best response to that, that kind of question or, or idea. Well, that's an interesting point about now working out what role the government does play in an issue like this. You've said, well, maybe it's to signal to the market uh, what would in fact be fair and equitable, certainly by setting that price floor of the minimum wage, saying actually it's it's really uh, beyond the pale to try and pay people any less than the current now $20 an hour. Uh, the government, does it have other functions, though, in this particular regard? I mean, is there anything else the government could do or should? should do to, in a sense, relieve the burden from employers who, particularly in a post-COVID world, are saying, you've got to be kidding me. My business is expected to survive lockdowns and have to pay my people more. Yeah, I guess that's where some have argued for the the use of more um, subsidies and more employer subsidies uh, to support in that journey. And I think, look, that has a a, a place to play. I think the role of governments... is being played out at the moment. They're setting that minimum benchmark. I think, uh, is that enough? Look, I don't know. I don't think so. I think they need to be more aspirational in that. And part of that might be through a subsidy scheme or ongoing subsidy scheme as well. But I think the other part that people don't often talk about is I think the key is for those that are in employment already, how do you incentivize upskilling or job development? I'll give you an example. that I've, I, This is a discussion I had with some National Party MPs last week. The, the majority of Pacific people are sitting in lower income paid jobs. So 20% of Pacifica people are in laboring jobs. About 13% are in machinery operating jobs. So when, when something like COVID hits, their jobs are at risk. When some economic crisis hits, they're on the lowest, uh, lowest level already. How do we uh, support those kinds of workers, incentivize their jobs, uh, job upskilling, or in order to progress in those uh, companies. I, I think of um, of Cardinal Logistics in Auckland, a big uh, logistics company. They, they took their, their employees through a uh, literacy and numeracy program to support them to, to have a stronger jobs and more established jobs. So I think government has a role in that. I think they need to be uh, providing stronger pathways for employers to, to, to give, um, uh, to incentivize upskilling, to give more upskilling opportunities to help in that career development for families so they're not just locked in the minimum wage or living wage but they are able to progress their families moving forward so i think that's part of the role they can government can set those benchmarks but they also need to be innovative in how they support those in employment so that they can have secure sustainable and also um, aspirational employment to move further in their career so not just stay in that laboring job for 30 years, which some people do, and my family did that, but also how do they progress to management, the team leader, to other sorts of jobs. So I think those are some of the the innovative 
uh, things that government could do that I don't think it does enough of. Well, you said you weren't an economist or a philosopher. We've talked economy, so let's talk philosophy. So the philosophy you're talking about now that many will maybe not know the name of, but essentially we're talking about a sort of libertarian idea around employment. And that is fundamentally that people have the choice to go and get educated, get trained, get better jobs, get better pay. And really the burden of responsibility lies on the individual to do that. And yet I know uh, from my own family that that's not as easily done as it is said. For example, in my family, uh, my brother is uh, with a Samoan girl and they have a beautiful family together. And my sister-in-law's youngest sister was told to leave high school to work in the factory so that the family could afford the rent. This kind of idea that we've all got the same level of choices and ability to access those choices is in a sense held in tension with the fact that nor do we want to say that actually people have no choices and therefore they need a handout. I mean, where do we find the line in this libertarian idea that the individual should just choose to improve themselves? Yeah, look, I would argue that it's, it, it, it always is both. I'm never going to give out a pure libertarian argument and say it's just the individual's responsibility. I think that's the tension that we have in society and in politics, and that it is, a, it is a bit of both. It needs to be both personal as well as collective responsibility. My example there around upskilling employees who are in lower-income jobs, I think that's not just a pure libertarian response. It, it is where the community is coming into play, where the education sector is coming into play, where um, employers who are that that way inclined are coming into play to support the the education opportunities or upskilling opportunities for that worker. So I think, I know it's a hard balance to reach and we never get that right mix, but I think it always is a bit of both. But I guess my my argument too would be, uh, would be Aaron, that I think we can't romanticise um, at times, and I think we do as a society, those who are lower incomes or, or, or the working poor or so on, I think that there's a tendency to say that, look, we need to provide all the opportunities for them. The system is against them. We need to fix their system. I think actually, you know, poor people make bad decisions just as much as middle class and wealthy decisions, uh, wealthy people do as well. The problem is, is that poorer people have less buffers and less room to move when they make those bad decisions. And so I think it is always that, that encouragement to say, what is the individual going through? How do they take responsibility of their journey? Where can the community or organisations or the government or whatever come into play? Look, I'm not a fan of big governments. I think they have a role, but but I think we need to realise that there's solutions within our communities as well. There's solutions that the private sector is is putting out there. So I don't, I agree with you that there are there isn't always the same equity when it comes to opportunity. But I will say this as a Samoan man who's grown up in the state house and lived all those buzzword lived experience that, 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 that people love to talk about today, I will say that there are a lot more opportunities for lower income people. And I think it is about providing platforms and aspirations and, and, and a push and maybe even a challenge to make sure that they're making the most of opportunities while, while at the same time making sure that there's a system that is responsive to the different needs that are out there, not just to one size fits all, but what's the different needs that a solo parent has has with five kids, different to a, a single, uh, a, a young couple with no children. I think it needs to be a responsive system and understand the different contexts 
I want to talk about this other partner that you keep mentioning, but in a very broad sense, this community. Now, the community comes, in a sense, in in an organized way, like the Salvation Army, like Christians Against Poverty, like a lot of what local churches do to support people in their community. But then there are these more sort of informal mechanisms. I mean, recently I was on Facebook and was quite intrigued to see uh, the story of a man who had applied for literally hundreds and hundreds of jobs over the last year and couldn't find one and yet in the telling of this story suddenly all these people were guaranteeing him that if he direct messaged them he'd have a job by Tuesday as if the community had in a sense the power to rise to the occasion whenever it wanted to. What is the role of the community both in that organized and kind of loose relational sense? I think you've you've explained the role pretty well there Aaron. I think it plays that role where it comes into Afi and support people that are in need. I think uh, through the organizational formal ways like the Salvation Army, I mean, we're a Christian church before a charity. So nothing for us transforms like the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the same time, we have huge amounts of social services that are there to help whānau when they are facing some real problems, whether it's addictions or housing or, or budgeting or so on. So I think there is a strong role for the for the formal sector to really respond. But like you say, I think some of the best stuff that happens in our community, here's another government buzzword, but it happens organically. It just happens. This stuff just comes together where it works well. I've seen, um, I, I do a lot of work around financial hardship and problem debt. I've seen families and networks come together that, to provide their own sort of lending schemes that is at no interest, that supports families, that is caring for other people so that they're not going to the predatory lenders. So I think that's where that organic sort of natural stuff comes into play, where they see an issue and they try and address it as quickly as possible. I think when all those actors are working together in civil society, then we get a well-functioning society. But I think when, when... this is maybe my personal view here, but when you're getting too much government influence on stuff, you're actually taking away the power from local whānau, local marae, local community, local churches to actually start addressing some of those issues. And I think there is such power and mana in our local communities. When you can have a system that supports that, that's even better. But I think, I really do believe that a lot of the, the issues that we're facing in our local communities can be dealt with within the local communities as long as they have enough support. Whether it's a formal response that the Salvation Army has in in an organizational way, or whether it comes through an organic, natural way where people are just responding. Like Pataki, sort of those those cupboards that happen up, those are cool, but are they mandated? Are they regulated? Do they have OSH running them, all that kind of stuff? Of course not. That'll kill the whole thing. But when you have those things just naturally developed, good, let people be able to contribute in their way to address some of the issues in our local community. Ronji makes some excellent points about this and in particular I think focuses on how complex this situation really is and that one single answer is not going to be enough and the problem with the living wage even though I think it has some merit as an idea is that it says to the employer you you are the person who needs to solve this and you're the only person and the government sort of throws their hands up in the air and says we're not going to do much more. 
Ronji's right. I think we need to have both the private sector, the businesses partnering with the government and providing opportunity for the individual. The individual, of course, needs to take responsibility. There's no way around that. We can't really solve problems for people against their will, but we can make it easier for them to thrive, particularly if we recognise that perhaps for a variety of reasons, they've not been able to access those opportunities and make the most of them, perhaps, like others may have. And of course, I love the fact that community groups and the community at large needs to continue to own closing that gap so that whilst people are trying to better their lot, they don't have to go without, remembering of course that it's not just individuals who go without, but their children. And we want to make sure that people are cared for whilst they're working on things. I know it's challenging, isn't it? It's kind of the, the handout or the hand up. Well, I think we need a little bit of both because sometimes you, you need a bit of a handout so that you can take the hand up so that you're not so concerned about making ends meet that you can actually liberate some uh, headspace and heart space for dreaming of a better future and doing the hard mahi that gets you another rung up the ladder. We finish today, though, by looking at a very extreme example of a living wage idea. When Dan Price from the company Gravity in the US, he was the CEO on a million dollars a year, decided, you know what? I'm earning way more than my staff. I'm going to take a 90% pay cut and I'm going to insist on a magnificent living wage, $70,000 for every staff member. And you got to believe the day he announced that was a fun staff meeting. You know, I was getting pretty emotional, to be honest, as I got there, and I, I, I lost it a little bit. Um, and so I was watching other people, and I think they were trying to figure out, like, is this a joke? Is this real? And some of them were like, oh, my gosh, this is the most amazing thing ever. And there was just this long silence that lasted what felt like an eternity, and then everyone erupted and started screaming. I wish we had actual footage of that rather than just Dan explaining what a marvellous staff meeting that would have been. Not one to miss. But what happened? Because, of course, remember, the theory is if you have something like the living wage, particularly a high living wage, it's going to have the wrong consequences. Well, the results are outstanding for Gravity. Their income has tripled since they did that. Uh, the number of employees has risen from 130 to 200. And one of the outcomes which I find very encouraging, particularly perhaps with house prices in mind in this country, is that uh, employees were able to buy a home 10 times more than prior to this move. So suddenly it wasn't just employees, but their families that experienced this benefit. They were able to buy a home and that's a wonderful outcome. It is a reminder that lots of people have responsibility around economic uh, prosperity but that sometimes corporations need to take a long hard look in the mirror and say actually do we have multiple bottom lines around here? Is this just about the dollar or do we care about the people who help us make those dollars as well. I think we all need to be challenged to keep refining that balancing act as best we can. Love to hear your thoughts about the living wage, uh, whether you're involved in a company that has one or should have one. What's it like living on the minimum wage in this country? You can get in touch and subscribe to this show at activeintelligence.nz. Make sure you visit the website and we look forward to hearing from you and we'll catch you next time on Active Intelligence.